Can everyone really lead? What does that look like? Hi, I'm Chris. And I'm Brianna. This is the When Everyone Leads podcast. We're coming from the Kansas Leadership Center, an organization that recently published a book called When Everyone Leads. Leadership is something you do, not something you are. Leadership is about putting the challenge at the center and working with other people, not just taking charge. We've been sent on a quest. This book inspires us, but how do people actually put it into practice? How does this apply to civic issues? What is clear? What is messy and complicated? This is When Everyone Leads on Civic Culture. co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. I also direct a program at the Aspen Institute on Citizenship and American Identity. Delighted to be here. Well, thanks for being here. We're so excited to have you as a guest. I told Marin you are my dream guest, and the fact that we have you on episode two is just amazing, so we're grateful to have you here. So how would you frame the issue that you're bringing to us, you know, in terms of an issue that everyone can lead on? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, the way we define our work at Citizen University, we're a nonprofit based in Seattle, but working all around the United States, is centered around changing culture. Our mission statement is to foster a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship. And so every piece of that we could break down and spend a podcast on, but we focus in particular on what is civic culture and how do we, all of us, change civic culture in the United States. And I think broadly speaking, it, of course, varies from state to state, place to place, even within a state. But, you know, what we mean by civic culture is the habits, the norms, the narratives, the mindsets, the heart sets, if that's a word, of how we hold a community together, how we live together. And these are times, broadly speaking, where that culture has gotten more nasty, more short-term, more selfish, more polarized, more tribalized, more cynical. And so our work is all about trying to activate culture change in a way that's super aligned with the ideas of this book. This is obviously your job, but my guess is it goes a lot deeper than that. What makes this issue so important? Why have you dedicated so much of your life and enterprise of Citizen University? Why is this the place where you're kind of making your stand in your life and career? That's a great way to put it, making your stand. I guess I'll answer that both personally and organizationally. They're very connected. Personally, I am the child of immigrants. My Parents were born in mainland China. They came to the United States via Taiwan in the late 1950s and ended up in a suburb of New York where I grew up in the Hudson Valley. And I grew up with this strong, mainly unspoken sense that all I had done was have the dumb luck to be born here, that they had done the heavy lifting. They had made the hard choices, the sacrifices. We were an IBM family working for a company then at the very peak of its powers as part of an economy that was at the peak of its powers at a time of peak American influence and opportunity. I hadn't done anything to earn that. I just kind of got plopped into it. And so I think a lot of the unspoken sense growing up was, how are you going to make this worth it? How are you going to earn all that you've been able to do here in the United States? And there's a simple way to boil that down, which is how can I be useful? And I think that deep ethos of be useful be not self-centered, be not only focused on private benefit or gain, but thinking about public contribution 
was just always there. It was a seed that was always there. It got watered a lot in my years in college. I went to Yale College, which exposed me to a wider world of public service and politics. And then I went to DC after that and worked in government and so forth. And so there is a through line of just my personally finding purpose in public life and particularly as a child of immigrants in trying to make good on the American promise. I am not cynical about the idea that there is an American promise, that there is an American creed, and that the ideas in that creed embedded in our foundational documents and early actions as a country, though they didn't contemplate someone who looked like me claiming them or enacting them, here I am claiming them and enacting them. And that that is my job is to make sure that more people, more of the time and more of the ways get more of a say in how we actually redeem the ideas of America. And so that has always been a strong sense of purpose for me personally. I would say organizationally for us, Citizen University, I mentioned I'm the CEO, but my other co-founder is actually my wife, Janae Kane, longtime theater artist. That was her background and training, but also one who was very civically and community minded and engaged and thinking about how can we bring art into ways that activate voice and a sense of agency in parts of you know even our state here in Washington that don't always feel that kind of voice and agency. So when we came together in life, we also came together in our work. And this is the part that really segues back to the idea of when everyone leads. Because the first endeavor that Janae and I worked on together was not about democracy or was not Citizen University. We worked together on a project that grew out of a book that I'd written called Guiding Lights. The subtitle is How to Mentor and Find Life's Purpose. It was a book about mentorship, and it described 15 or 16 pairs of mentor-mentee relationships across all different domains and walks of life, from Marine Corps drill instructor to Hollywood acting coach to corporate executive to major league pitching coach and each of their mentees. And not all of those relationships were fruitful or successful, but just kind of looking at the different aspects and dimensions of this. And having written that book and spent all this time around the country meeting people like that, I wanted to bring them together. I was the hub that had seen all these spokes, but I wanted all of them to know each other. And I wanted to create a conference and ended up working with this organization in town here in Seattle that put on gatherings like this. And Janae at the time was the communications director for that organization. So we started working together on what became, by my lights, the country's preeminent national conference on the art of mentorship, the Guiding Lights Weekend. And for many years, we did this annual gathering and people like the ones I was just describing came together and shared with each other common practices, common threads, and shared with a much wider audience their insights and wisdom. But over the years, what happened was that each of the rounds of this conference, we realized that actually this was much more about the art, not only of mentorship, but the question of how do you pass on what you know? How do you sustain a thing that you are a steward of, whether that is the knowledge of Zuni pottery making in a northern New Mexico Indian Pueblo, or whether that is the work of platoon leadership in the Marine Corps. How do you pass on what you know? And what we realized, this is more not only the art of mentorship, but the art of community building, the art of citizenship, the community context within which any of that passing on of what you know happens. So a few years in, this conference started shifting more explicitly toward democracy and citizenship and community building. And there was one year where we gave the conference the theme, Citizen University. And people gravitated to that. And they were like, yes, you know, this is a time right now where what we need to know and learn from each other is how to live together. 
we realized then, wow, that's where the energy channel is. We changed the name of the conference, but we actually turned the conference into an ongoing 501c3 organization. That's a long couple of paired backstories, but they both are about finding purpose. And they both are about deciding that this is what matters at the level of most intrinsic motivation, both personally and for us collectively as an organization. And of course, all of that is said in the context of our times, right? Why does this book, When Everyone Leads, matter so much right now? And that is because our civic culture is sick. That is because our politics are diseased. It's because as a country, people are talking more often about civil war than they are about civil discourse. We have both an opportunity and an obligation And this goes back to that deep DNA of be useful right now to bring to bear what we can, where we sit in some ways, in whatever way we're able to, to be part of the solution. And that's my motivation, I think, just as it is yours. It's so cool to me that it all started with be useful and what you thought of as being useful was giving back to the community and finding a way for different communities to be able to live that. Not many people will say, okay, be useful. What's the best way to do that? connect. That is so cool. (laughs) Even the idea of everyone leads. Once you come up with a notion like that, that becomes a North Star and a framing notion, it's amazing how often you'll start seeing it come up in your life, right? Mm -hmm. As you all been bringing this book into the world and, and its ideas into the world, I'm sure all of a sudden in all kinds of situations, a friendly neighborhood soccer game, an incident in the checkout line at the grocery store, whatever, right? Just everyday life, you suddenly see moments where everyone can lead. And the same was true for the idea of be useful. As a kid, if anyone speaks Mandarin, a phrase that you didn't want to hear as a kid in my household was meo yong, which literally means of no use, useless, right? And if I was shirking chores or complaining that I was bored or whatever, my parents would just be like, don't be so male, young. get going, get off your butt. And years later, when I was at Yale College, one of the famous alumni of Yale is a guy named Nathan Hale, who many people have heard of because he was a patriot during the Revolutionary War, whose best known line right before he was executed by the British for being caught as a spy during the Revolutionary War, he said, I only regret that I have but one life to give for my country. That's his most famous line. People don't know his second most famous line, which he actually wrote in the letter in which he accepted that ultimately fatal mission. And this second line is actually carved in stone on the base of the bell tower on the middle of Yale's campus. So I'd walk past this line all the time. And the line is, I wish to be useful. Uh, To me, I love that he said that. I love that Yale decided that they wanted to carve those words into the granite base of Harkness Tower. I wish to be useful. Nathan Hale, class of 1773 or whatever it was, 1753. The idea of being useful will just keep on reverberating, just like the idea of when everyone leads. It sounds like a subconscious phrase that you keep seeing whenever you walk by it. Be useful, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Remember what you're here for. (laughs) But like all of you, you all undertook this podcast, not because anybody told you to, but because you had read this book and you were hungry for ways to pop the ideas of the book into three dimensions, right? From two to three dimensions and to really tease out, okay, well, how does this play out with different people in ways when they're not even reading the book or haven't even read the book yet? How does this stuff play out? You took that upon yourselves, right? You decided a small group of you, four of you, put this whole podcast together, started imagining conversations and guests and ways to put meat on the bones of this. And in short, you understood that what can happen when everyone leads. And I don't know your title, Brianna, but here you are leading this conversation. 
the thing that I think struck me from KLC the most from my very beginning was this conversation we call the gap. So we want to take a moment and sort of explore the gap. You mentioned your concern about civic culture and it being sick, but I love the results that come from this question when I ask, when you think about the future of our civic culture, what concerns you the most? What concerns me the most is the contagious creeping spread and self-fulfilling spread of cynicism and learned helplessness, if you want to use the phrase from psychology. You know, one of the things that I often say and, and believe deeply is that democracy works only if enough of us believe democracy works. This is, in some ways, a faith-fueled enterprise. And I don't mean faith in a deity. I mean faith in each other and faith that this thing can work and that it's worth trying to make it work. And in that sense, it's a little bit like money. What makes a magical rectangular green piece of paper with a number 10 or 20 on it mean something other than the fact that we, over and over again, a million fold times a day, invest it with meaning. We believe that money means something. So it means something. It becomes a medium of exchange, but it also becomes a thing in its own right that you want to hoard and protect and have and so forth. And so it is with democracy. Belief is both so powerful and central and so evanescent. And when we're in a time like this, where you have leaders and you have people in authority, let's put it that way, and positions of public visibility, embodying a sense of it's all a nihilistic game. It's all just a joke. It's all for the laughs. It's all for the performative dimensions of it. It's all to own the other side on social media. Then you get a political culture that is at best about spectatordom and watching this circus and chaos unfold. And at worst becomes just all about the lull. You know, when you believe that our politics is broken, uh, you help to make it a little bit more broken. When you believe that you can't possibly do anything and you have no power, you make yourself just a little bit more powerless. That's not to say that the inverse is totally true, that simply believing that you're powerful and simply believing that democracy can work makes you more powerful or makes it work. That belief then has to be coupled with commitment and action and learning and, again, things that are not just about you personally, but are about the collective and about mutual and reciprocal action. But to me, at the very heart of civic culture is belief. And what I'm worried about is the way in which people have lost faith, quite simply. People have lost faith in democracy and each other. I don't even mean they've lost faith in government's ability to deliver X, Y, or Z benefit. Frankly, too many Americans take for granted how many benefits government still does deliver to us every day, even in this most dysfunctional of times. But I mean, at a step prior to policymaking and elections, this culture of, I don't want to be the sucker who contributes and participates. I don't want to be the only one who doesn't realize this is a winner take all, every man for himself, get what you can, duck, duck, goose kind of game. And someone's going to get left in musical chairs, not being able to have an opportunity. And so I'm going to just hoard and look out for myself. I'm just going to cut my neighbor out of this. That vibe, that feeling, that culture gets played out a thousand times a day gets played out in, in how we drive and in traffic. It gets played out when you hear about economic opportunities and who you want to share that news with. It plays out in thinking, hey, this group of people seems to have gotten an opportunity. Why them? Why not me? This group of people seems to be getting more voice and inclusion in American life. How is that hurting me? And I think we at Citizen University are attuned to the ways in which those norms and attitudes are contagious, just like their opposites, just like a norm of Instead of every man for himself, a norm of we're all better off and we're all better off. That too can be contagious. Instead of nothing I do really matters, and so I might as well be as selfish as I assume the next guy is, 
and as short-term rapacious as I assume the next person is, instead of that norm, a norm of society becomes how you behave. And your choices, your actions, your omissions are set in motion a cascade of norms and ideas of what is okay. And I think that's a lot of what we try to teach at Citizen University through all of our program work is that we are all of us all the time setting in motion these cascades that add up to social norms that define what is okay. And I think that the pandemic has been a great and relentless and unrelenting teacher to us of what I'm talking about here. Frankly, unfortunately, Kansas, like most of the rest of the United States, has not gotten a passing grade on that test of how we should treat each other and hold each other together during a challenge of contagion like this, in which a threat is contagious, but also the remedies to it in our norms and values can also be contagious. We haven't passed that test. We've kind of muddled through, maybe incomplete is the best we could say that we get on it as a country. And some might be harsher than that in their grading. But that is a specific example of this larger idea that I'm trying to name, which is that when we think about culture change, what I'm afraid of is that people will give up and become cynical in a way that becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah. And we could spend dissertations and hours talking about it. If you had to pinpoint it to a root cause that feels actionable, what do you think is driving that cynicism? I think there's two root causes that are at a tectonic plate scale, making all of this happen. And then I'll hop quickly to your question of what can we do about them? The two dominant tectonic facts of our lives right now in this country are that we're living through a time of grinding, worsening inequality and concentration of economic opportunity. We have levels of inequality in the United States now not seen here since the eve of the Great Depression. And that is not a coincidence. That is causation more than correlation. When things get this unequal and this lopsided, the system tends to become much more fragile and much more likely to tip over. So that's one. That driving fact and force makes everyone hyper-status conscious, hyper-status anxious, hyper-zero-sum in their thinking about it. Someone else's gain must be my loss. And that feeds kind of both the populism and the populist anger that we see both on the right and the left in over the last decade. I'm not just talking about this current moment in American life, but this goes at least back to both the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street emerging at the same time in the same ways, each of them spawning subsequent generations and mutations of angry populism. That's one big tectonic shift. And the other, of course, is that we are within sight of a day when this country becomes a majority people of color nation. In fact, that day has already arrived literally in the births of the United States. New babies are already majority babies of color. That has created this great shift and set of tensions and cross-cutting tensions that mix excitement and hope about what we can be with a lot of, again, loss and fear among whites who, in the most extreme and noxious versions of it, gravitate to quote-unquote replacement theory, that whites are being replaced, you will not replace us, as they chanted in Charlottesville. But even on the side of people of color who are like, hey, we're approaching being part of the majority of this country, and yet still we have by far a disproportionate burden of powerlessness, of lack of opportunity, of oppression and discrimination. That power itself remains far more white-dominated across all institutions in the United States. That's a recipe for conflict and cynicism and for people checking out and giving up on whether change is possible. So those are two big forces converging at one time in a country's life. And sure, there's a lot of national policy things we can do about economic inequality and trying to make our economy work for everybody and so on and so forth, about cultural integration and welcoming a more inclusive way of holding space and setting a norm of belonging. 
But to me, the old adage that all politics is local, all citizenship is local, all civic change, all civic leadership is local. These are national, in fact, international problems that we're dealing with. When you think about inequality, that is a feature of globalization. I mean, the fact that so many of our great jobs have gone to other parts of the world. But what you can do about that, yeah, there are policy things that you can do about that at the national global level. But what each of us right now, you and I can do is to ask how in Kansas, how in Washington, how in Wichita, how in Seattle, how in Wyandotte County, how in King County, how in whatever county, Olathe County, how can we actually start making sure that more people get to be part of the opportunity circle? How can we start making sure that more people get literate in the ways of exercising civic voice and civic power so that we can have a more thriving or small d democratic culture in our town, in our county, in our community? And for us concretely at Citizen University, we think of citizenship in this equation, power plus character equals citizenship. That to live like a citizen, you both have to be fluent in power and understand how things get done and who decides and how you can write yourself into that story. But then you've got to couple that with a grounding in civic character. And I don't mean just individual virtue. I mean norms and values and, and ethos of how shall we live together, of service and mutuality and responsibility taking rather than shirking and service before self. All of our programming at Citizen University is about trying to teach power and cultivate character. And all of the programs that we do that in are about inviting people who are local catalysts, people rooted in place, not thinking about this as a national matter, but thinking about this, how it plays out in their town or even their part of town. And we train them in different frameworks and train them in different methods of democratizing, learning about power and about creating rituals and gatherings that cultivate a sense of shared purpose and civic culture and bringing those home. And I think all the stuff that I'm talking about here, to me, it boils down to how do you bring this home? How do you apply the lessons of when everyone leads to these questions of dealing with inequality, dealing with the fact that we don't have a unifying story of us anymore as Americans. We are fracturing among us and them. We are fracturing along lines of race and ideology. So how do we create a bigger, durable story of us just in my part of town, my part of the state? That's the challenge and the opportunity for us right now. Are you ready to start putting the idea of everyone leading into practice? Join us for a new one-day program based on KLC's best-selling book. Sign up at kansasleadershipcenter.org. And don't worry, you won't have to listen to my voice or Brianna's voice teaching the whole day. We'll be delighted to have you a part of the When Everyone Leads community. And if we got that right, we made that happen. How would things look different? What would we see happening? How would our civic culture look different? Again, at every fractal scale, what it would mean in the first place is people in a community dealing with each other, not the way they deal with each other on social media, which is performative with the object of the performance to kind of own the other side and to torch the other side and to signal your virtue in a way that reduces people to this two-dimensional kind of avatar. Number one, what it would look like, what success looks like is people popping each other back into three dimensions and rehumanizing each other. Yeah, you vote for the other party. Yeah, you worship a God unlike my God or worship no God. You have consumer habits that are very different from my consumer habits. You hunt, I don't hunt. You and I are part of two totally different tribes and I could immediately boil you down into a stereotype and reduce you in the way that social media and our media culture encourages me to reduce you Success looks like me resisting and refusing that temptation and looking for the complexity in you that reflects back the complexity in me and finding 
the ways in which you and I might have been shaped for all of our surface differences and for all of our deep differences even, you and I might have been shaped by the same kind of experience, by the same kind of trauma, by the same kind of mentor, or by the same kind of tormentor. You and I can find some kind of human connection. So that on the relational level is what success looks like, people seeing each other again. And this sounds like, oh, well, that's kind of you know vague, but no, there is no top-down solution to the sickness of our political culture. No president or replacement of a president is going to fix this. No governor is going to fix this. This is about whether we, in our daily relationships, including with people we are connected to by blood, can see each other in, in these ways across the things that have divided us and, and, and separated us in recent years. That's one layer or one fractal scale. The next fractal scale, what success looks like, is a community where everyone leads, where people don't just sit back and say, I can't believe they haven't fixed this yet. I can't believe they decided to change the policy on X, Y, or Z. I can't believe they cut bus service or whatever. Success looks like a city, a town, a community where people realize the benefit of being in America in a self-governing you know, democratic republic is for better and for worse, there is no they. They is us, right? And the more that you talk about a they and disavow responsibility and sit back like a spectator watching something unfold, the more you are failing to live like a citizen, the more you are failing to lead from wherever you sit. And so success looks like the inverse of that and saying, there's no they, there's me, there's we, there's us. And so if there's a thing that I feel like is broken or suboptimal in my community, the question is, who am I going to talk to who agrees with me about that? And how are we going to show up to start changing that? And that means, again, you don't even have to get to the level of higher order civics and how you can then make a bill become a law and change policy. Yes, that would be great. But I, I'll start with something more basic than that. Join a club. Success looks like people joining again and relearning what Alexis de Tocqueville wrote of in Democracy in America as the secret sauce of our society then, which was the art of association, the way in which Americans, busy as they were, it's no excuse right now to say, well, I'm busy, I'm working two shifts, I got this. When you're motivated, you will make time. When you're motivated to connect with other people, to find common purpose, to find a space where you can build that civic muscle on a thing that you care about together, you will make space for that. And that art of association, it need not even be specifically on a civic or political issue. Just the art of forming book clubs, gardening clubs, whatever it might be, is building a muscle that has completely atrophied in American life in the last half century. So success looks like a flowering ecosystem of people joining and rebuilding those, what Tocqueville called, little platoons of democracy, right? At that fractal scale, I'm talking to Kansans here. Let's use a Dust Bowl metaphor. The Dust Bowl didn't just happen. The Dust Bowl happened at the end of a long multi-decade process of people selfishly thinking about not the commons, but about how can I just get the most out of my piece of soil here? And they just killed the soil that they were responsible for. And they just completely depleted that topsoil. And then when the climate did change, they were completely vulnerable to the ways in which that topsoil was just going to blow away, right? And what happened literally in Kansas and Oklahoma and across the Dust Bowl has been happening figuratively for us in the gardens of our democracy. We have not been tending the topsoil. We've not been turning the soil through the act of joining, and the act of listening, and the act of rehumanizing people we disagree with. And we've just torched that topsoil in a way that now when you get a great change, like a pandemic, when you get a great change, like a global financial crisis, that topsoil blows away and things can no longer take root in it. And to me, success is when we actually tend that garden 
in ways both literal and figurative. And if we do that where we are in your part of Kansas, in my part of Washington state, then the national stuff will begin to take care of itself. We will get national leaders who will respond to our new ways of showing up, our new ways, our new norms and attitudes, that there is no they, there's we, and that we've got to take responsibility for what's broken. I know that you had mentioned social media earlier, helping to play into some stereotypes. Do you think that it has helped with people connecting with others who might have that same type of cynicism and help bring them down the rabbit hole, as people say, and push them more towards that versus democracy? Absolutely. I think you have just described QAnon. And QAnon, it's easy for people who are not in QAnon to look and point at that and say, that is nuts. Ha ha ha. But to me, I think it's worth actually asking what leads a person to QAnon, Mm -hmm. right? And many people listening may have people close to them who are there, who go down those rabbit holes. And this is not a new thing. Tocqueville wrote about this too, but it goes back even farther than that. One of the features of a small D democratic culture where everybody's supposed to have equality and everybody's supposed to have freedom, the darker underside of that is everybody's supposed to be able to make it on their own. If you were a serf in a feudalistic society, you didn't complain about things weren't turning out as well as you might've wished because you had no choice. This was your lot in life. But as Americans, we aren't assigned a lot in life. We're all supposed to be pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And when things don't work out that way, we look for something to explain why that is. We look for a reason. You know, most Americans look to themselves and they blame themselves. And that's the downside of our individualistic culture. And most Americans are what I call kind of collective blind. They can't see the the things that happen as a matter of collective action or collective failure to act that bring us to a point of suffering or struggle. And so they blame themselves, but you can blame yourself only so long before human nature makes you want to find another reason for your troubles. And conspiracy theory provides that in spades. Conspiracy theory is what happens when a people who are lost and insecure and need to resolve the cognitive dissonance of, I'm supposed to be making it on my own, and yet I'm not making it on my own. What's going on? Conspiracy theory offers an answer about those people over there are pulling the strings and making your life bad. About those people over there who rigged the game and decided that people like you must be oppressed and suppressed. That's always existed, but social media then amplifies it and kind of speeds the evolution or devolution of that conspiracy theory to levels of crazy. Not only are there people pulling the strings and manipulating the system to kind of grind you down, but those people are pedophiles who eat children the kind of crazy ideas. And so social media has taken what's always been a part of human nature and always part of the anxious side of democratic existence, Mm -hmm. a need to blame something out there for my troubles. That's what we're dealing with. And, you know, you can say, well, our technology is also enabling people who want to be doing good to connect faster than ever. Yes, that's true. But I think, as we know from human nature, the speed with which the bad amplifies and spreads is always greater than the speed with which the good spreads and amplifies. And as Madison wrote in the Federalist Papers, if men were angels, we would need no government. We need government because we as humans are always tending toward the selfish, always tending toward domination of others, always tending toward the sins of oppression, always tending towards cutting people off to get yours. And government helps curb that, but government can't and shouldn't be the 
solver of first resort of those tendencies. We and our own civic character and our own capacity to control ourselves, to govern ourselves, should be the first line of that kind of remedy. I imagine that vision, like you had laid out a few minutes ago, seeing people three-dimensionally, people being involved at local stuff. I'm an optimist. Most Americans, that would sound pretty good to them. If that's true, why are we stuck? What keeps us from getting there? What would we have to work on to try and overcome, to get to that other side of that better civic culture that you describe? I think a huge word and idea at this juncture in what you're talking about is the word invitation. People, if asked, I agree, would be like, yeah, I'm down with that. I would like to see that kind of culture in society. Well, why don't we have it? Well, no one's invited me to be part of that. No one's invited me to make something like that. And again, there is a passivity in that. But part of what we're saying is be the inviter, invite others in, make something. And let me be more concrete. I haven't talked as much about specifically what Citizen University does in our work. But one of our programs that we've worked with you all on at KLC is called Civic Saturdays. And Civic Saturdays are these gatherings that are essentially a civic analog to a faith gathering. It's not church or, or synagogue or mosque, but it on purpose has the arc and the flow and the feel of that kind of gathering oriented, not, as I said earlier, toward a particular God, but toward faith in democracy and how we can actually believe in each other and cultivate that set of norms and practices. And a Civic Saturday unfolds like church might unfold. You sit down next to a stranger and you're invited to both greet each other and talk about a common question that goes past small talk. Um, there are readings of texts that are drawn from different parts of the American tradition that you could think of as civic scripture. We rise and we sing together different songs from different parts of the American songbook and tradition. There's a civic sermon and where someone from the communities speaks to try to make some sense of our times and the moral and ethical challenges of everything we're talking about, of, of making these choices in daily life. And then most importantly, at the end of this, we form up in civic circles where people then sit in circles of four or six or eight and talk about how do we take that inspiration, that motivation that came before in this hour and commit to each other in small circles to do something, to make something, to join something, to invite each other to, hey, we've got a neighborhood cleanup thing going on. I, I want to invite you all to join me. Hey, we're trying to get a, a literacy program going for the young people in this part of town. Come join me in this. Hey, I've seen that no one's been cleaning up this empty lot by the bus stop. Why don't we meet there on Saturday and do this? And that kind of action that comes when people invite each other in a circle came as a result of us inviting them to a Civic Saturday, right? And we've created a civic seminary program where we're training people from Kansas and all around the United States to lead these gatherings. I tell you about this because this is one specific form of invitation. If a listener is hearing about this and thinking, wow, that's cool. I would like to join Civic Seminary and start leading Civic Saturdays in my community. Great. Come on board. Citizenuniversity.us is our website. But if you're like, that's interesting, but that's not quite my cup of tea, then back to the book when everyone leads. Then the question is, well, what are you going to do? What could you do in this way, right? What form of invitation could you extend to others to form some pod of three, six, 10, 20, 30, 50 people to do something? And that is that cellular level of building that muscle back in civic life. And I think you started earlier talking about a concept that is core to your book and to the work of KLC, and that is the gap, capital T, capital G. And you talk about the ways in which everybody intuits the gap. They know the gap between what's promised and what's actually happening. And people get cynical about that gap when they see that gap sitting unchanged for too long, right? 
And that can be true at a workplace that professes to be an inclusive, wonderful, loving workplace, and yet workers are treated like crap. And that's true of a city that says, we're an all-American city, a welcoming city. And then you realize, oh, well, they hate immigrants in that city or whatever it is. And that's true for us as the United States. To me, the creedal gap, that's the biggest gap we deal with, the gap between government of the people, by the people, for the people, and what we actually get, the gap between all men are created equal and the society we actually have, the gap between life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and people living under bridges on fentanyl. You know, I mean, that gap is the gap we live as Americans every day. And the way that we close that gap is to invite each other to close that gap. And I think I'm not being facetious. We have to invite each other over and over again in small and large ways to close that gap. Whatever you do, wherever you are, you can close that gap and you can invite others to join you in doing that. So I convene a lot of conversations about difficult issues, whether it's the relationship between law enforcement and communities of color, to guns and public safety, to racial inequities in our society. I'm curious, when you think about who's getting invitations to these conversations, who needs to be invited that is not getting the invitations they need? Because I can send out invitations and I can get the same people coming to my parties Great. all the time. I love that. that. That is such a huge point. You may have heard me say this, Chris. You know, I, I have a friend here in Seattle, a woman named Vivian Phillips, who is a longtime leader in the arts sector, a longtime leader in the African-American arts and, and culture community. And she said something once at an event years ago that has always stayed with me, and I always quote her and credit her. She was talking about how all these nonprofit organizations, all these arts organizations talk about the underserved. What can we do for the underserved? How can we help underserved kids? And her response to that after a while was, the underserved are the uninvited. Stop thinking of them as underprivileged and deserving of pity and start inviting them. If you have relative privilege, power, and positional authority, then start thinking about inviting people who have less. And your point is exactly right. Don't just keep on layering another layer of lacquer on those who already have. Ask about how can we extend invitations to those who have not? And if you're like, well, I don't know where to begin. Everybody here is one degree removed, if not themselves in the position of being in a circle of people who are on the have not side of that equation. And being intentional about inviting community leaders, trusted elders, organizations that work in folks who traditionally haven't been invited, that is what inclusive leadership is. And that's not a progressive thing, by the way. That's not just about DEI and racial equity and all the watchwords that the left is comfortable with and the right now disavows because the left is comfortable with. This is about what it means to be an American. If you like, this is what it means to be a Christian. If you like, this is what it means to be a human. How can we create a circle of belonging and ask ourselves, how do we expand and extend that notion of us? And you have to ask yourself after a while, if I keep on inviting the same people, and by the way, this is something that we deal with at Citizen University, because who shows up to Civic Saturdays? The usual suspects. White, educated, middle-class women always come to Civic Saturday, guaranteed. You can fill a Civic Saturday always with white, educated, upper-middle-class women, particularly who have time to volunteer. And you could hit metrics of attendance just with that alone. And I'm not saying we figured this out. We're always struggling in our Civic Saturdays and the ones that are the people we train lead to how to make sure you keep on extending those circles of invitation. But that requires intention. It requires commitment. And it requires trust, trusted relationships over time of the sort that KLC has cultivated in county after county with everyday Americans who, whether or not they have a capital L leadership title, see themselves as 
in our terminology at CU, civic catalysts, people who can catalyze change. It's about you inviting them into trainings that KLC offers and us inviting them at Citizen University into trainings, and then them inviting people in a far more inclusive way. What I like about this is I feel like we're identifying factions here, and it's not like a left or right faction or a left, right, or center. It's like the invited and the uninvited. I'm curious, when you think about Civic Saturdays or what we do at KLC, what are the uninvited thinking when they see that meeting invite scroll across their email or scroll across their Facebook feed? What are the stories they're telling themselves? Well, they may be thinking cynically, that's not for me, or they may be not even cynically just thinking, oh, that's the kind of thing that well-meaning white women go to. But I think the key of your question is, what would they think if they see it scrolling on social media? And to me, the better question is, what would they think if someone they know and trust invited them to this? And I think that's the key here. That is the ultimate responsibility that we have, is to try to disintermediate every aspect of this. Not only disintermediate the way we get information and form opinions, but also the way we extend invitations. If I get invited, I was not raised in a, any faith tradition. And so, well, first of all, if you're scrolling on your Facebook feed or social media feed, you're unlikely to get things that aren't already part of your preference set. But imagine just by chance that I got invited on a Facebook feed or saw something promoting an event at a conservative evangelical megachurch. I would scroll past that. I might not have any negative feelings about them, but I'd be like, that's not for me. Keep scrolling. But if a friend of mine who has been part of that congregation or who grew up in that congregation and is trying to figure out how that congregation can open up its own sense of who belongs within its walls were to invite me and to say, hey, will you come with me to this? I know this isn't totally your thing, but would you come? I think it could be interesting. We might learn something here. Then I would consider that. In fact, then I would actually be kind of enthusiastic about that. But that's literally never happened to me because we don't extend those kinds of invitations mm -hmm. to each other. And that's the muscle that we have to build. How did the invited get in the way? One way that the invited can get in the way of the uninvited either ever receiving an invitation or coming is to think that it stops with simply extending the invitation. I invited them, but they didn't come. Well, that's not quite enough. How did you invite them? Through what trusted relationship did you invite? But okay, let's imagine that you invited them, the uninvited, and they actually came. Another way that the invited often then will get in the way is not making any adjustments to the way in which they are holding space, talking, and not creating a sense of belonging and welcome. And I guess it's that simple, right? This is true in every form of invited, uninvited. I'm involved with a project called welcome.us, which is this national cross-partisan effort in the wake of the war in Ukraine to welcome refugees to the United States. And that's connected to a thing called Welcoming America, which for many years has been trying to welcome immigrants and refugees to the United States and has focused on this initiative called Welcoming Communities. What does it mean for a community like Wichita to say we're a welcoming community? What are the norms we're going to set? What are the messages we're going to send? What are the policies we're going to unfold? What are the ways we're going to activate our power, our business community, our faith community, our teacher community to be welcoming to the newcomers to this land who are coming to the United States, often in very dire circumstances? How are we going to do that? That is one instantiation of it. And if you take that metaphorically to, well, I'm running a Civic Saturday or I'm doing a KLC program or whatever, how am I going to not get in the way? It's more than just the initial invitation. It's about intentionally with others creating a tone and a space that makes yours a welcoming community. And 
that is its own form of leadership. And by the way, when you think about this in the context of race and racial equity, that doesn't have to mean a white leader saying, hello, welcome, you know, people of color to my meeting. I will now spend the next 40 minutes self-flagellating and talking about what a bad person I am because I am oh, white. that's the worst. <laughs> talking about my part of white structural racism and white privilege. Just that's makes everyone feel uncomfortable. Exactly, right? <laughs> you know, Brianna, like that's going to turn off POCs almost as much. Like I didn't yeah. come here for the white guilt, white absolution session. And like, now I have to pat you on the back and make you feel you better. So, you know, <laughs> I was, oh, okay. Now I see why I was invited. I was invited to be able to make you feel better about yourself. Yeah. So that's a way in which this kind of getting in the way can happen too. I guess it sounds so simple. Number one, welcome people. Number two, think about how to do that authentically and with humanity and make it not about you. The problem with self-flagellation is that's still about them. That's still about, hello, I've invited the underprivileged here to make the privilege feel more comfortable and more morally at ease. But if you make it not about you, but about how the uninvited feel and how they can actually feel respected, not patronized, but respected, that's the key. And I think the note that I'll end on is our colleagues and friends at an organization called More in Common did this incredible public research on how Americans see themselves right now. And they did this poll a couple of years or so ago that had this remarkable finding that across every demographic, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, black, white, Asian, poor, rich, urban, rural. The one through line that is true across every demographic right now is that Americans feel disrespected. And that to me, it goes back to those tectonic things that I was talking about. Everybody is status anxious. Everybody is unsure. Even people with privilege and wealth are feeling attacked and walking on eggshells and they don't want to get canceled and so on and so forth. And people without that are feeling disrespected. And so we're in this time right now where, unfortunately, we have to get back to basics. And the basics of leading others humanely is setting a tone of welcome and belonging and in earnest, authentically trying to respect one another. And that means being curious about one another. That means actually wanting to see the complexity in one another. That means being willing to be changed by one another. That's what we try to cultivate at Civic Saturdays. I know it's what you try to cultivate at KLC. And frankly, we also know that's what happens in the best of small businesses, in the best of faith traditions, in the best of classroom teaching. And so we are trying to activate those better angels right now. And sad as it may seem to get back to those basics, it's where we've got to be. But it's also what we get to do. And it's a way where you don't have to have a title. You don't have to have that job, quote unquote. This is where everyone leads. And this is the way that together we can change the culture from inhumane to more humane, from discourteous and angry to civil and caring, and from super polarized to more complex and non-binary in every sense, where we can actually begin to rehumanize one another. Are you ready to start putting the idea of everyone leading into practice? Join us for a new one-day program based on KLC's best-selling book, Sign up at kansasleadershipcenter.org. And don't worry, you won't have to listen to my voice or Brianna's voice teaching the whole day. We'll be delighted to have you a part of the When Everyone Leads community. Hi, I'm Marin Berblinger, Journal Engagement Manager at the KLC. I am Julian Montes, and I am the Creative Services Manager here at the Kansas Leadership Center. Hashtag start. <laughs> Oh, we never stopped. I've been recording. We this never stopped. Oh, yeah, that's right. Once you are on, we are on. Let's, yeah, Bree, what's on your mind? 
Oh, there was just a lot in that conversation. I'm trying to wrap my head around everything right now. So I don't know if you want to go first this time. (laughs) I went first first last time. time. (laughs) I did. I went first last time. We talked a little bit off the official interview about some of the ideas that were coming up about authorizing yourself to lead, leadership is self-authorizing. There's something about this book, when I think about it, that I keep coming back to start where you have influence. One of the things that resonated for me was you want to fix national politics, you want to fix American democracy, don't look to do it at Congress or the White House for those big things that we all talk about all the time that don't affect our lives as much as local. Part of it is getting involved in local things, inviting people locally, starting with the people that you have relationships with. Like what Eric said about someone who is part of the uninvited isn't going to come because of an email. They're not going to come because of a Facebook invite. They're going to come because what he said, someone they know who they trust says that you're invited. So it feels like the first and basic act of leadership here is invitation and inviting ourselves. I think another thing, and maybe this is getting into leadership is risky, going to places where you are uninvited. And that's a challenging and difficult concept because there are some places you're uninvited to that might be particularly unfriendly or dangerous. And I don't think we want people to go to those places, but we should be going to talk to people who make us feel uncomfortable, who make us feel like we don't have the right answers, who make us feel like we may not have everything quite figured out. And those things that we thought were central to who we are and the way we think the world works, that there's another side of those. Everyone can hold multiple interpretations. Everyone can expand the bounds of how they see the world. And that's what's going through my mind, really getting better about invitation and expanding the range of invitations that we make and really thinking about our work starting at a very small level, at a very local level, at a a very relational level. All of what Eric talked about, so much of what he brought to his personal mission was related to family, was related to his parents and this obligation that he felt that his parents brought to him, cultivated in him. And even his work with Citizen University had origins in his work with his wife. And I sort of feel like Eric is one of America's preeminent family counselors trying to help us talk better as a family and see ourselves as a family. You've turned my uh, little thing that makes me talk or pulled my string and I've kept going. So it's okay. You can just keep going, just <laughs> wind you up and you'll go. No. So you brought up three points that I think throughout the whole conversation is what was going through my mind local government versus federal government, where can, I think I said it last, go around regular schmegular, where can the regular schmegular person fit in and feel like they're actually doing something for the community making changes? And we can't really do that in the federal level, honestly. It's so hard for us regular people to see change and to enact change in that federal level. So then we talk about how do we do that locally? We talk about inviting the uninvited. That is 
so much easier said than done. We all have our group of people that we talk to. We all have our connections that we have. And it's difficult. If we all could market well, market ourselves well, I'm sure there would be a ton more musicians out there. There'd be a ton more famous actors. There'll be a ton more YouTube sensation stars. Not everybody has that skill to be able to market themselves and market what they care about to people that they're not well connected to. So maybe everybody knows one person that's one or two people removed, but getting that one person that you know, that's one or two people removed into it enough to invite other people. How am I supposed to do that? Me being me. And then the third thing that I have is the uninvited will only come. He had mentioned if there's people that they know that have invited them, that they trust, that they've known for a while. But the uninvited also have to care about that issue. So if you're inviting me to something and I genuinely do not care what happens, it does not affect me. I'm not going to show up whether I like you or not. It has to affect me in a way where I'm like, if I don't show up to this, it's going to do something to my life. How do I be less selfish to show up? Yeah, but I think there's also something there about how do people frame things in a way that invite you because they're clear about how it affects your life. I think the city council, the school board, the state legislature, they're doing stuff that affects your life all the time, but they're not Mm -hmm. necessarily thinking about how I can invite people into the conversation so that they can understand that ahead of time. It seems like there's maybe some competing values there between inviting people into the conversation and having the conversations that need to get done. And I was curious, I bet you feel invited to certain kinds of conversations and uninvited to certain kinds of conversations. And I'm wondering when you think about it, what's the deciding factor that sort of makes you feel that way? Personally, just speaking about like what I've been invited to and what I haven't been invited to, I feel like when people invite me to things, It's more stereotypical. We assumed that you would like this, so we're going to invite you to it. Or we kind of need somebody to take notes and be the helper in this, so we're going to invite you to this, to not really speak your voice, but to be there as like a token or a helper because your group of people love to help and love to be that assistant. I feel that and it makes me not want to go to things that I'm invited to (laughs) because then I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) I don't like the way that you guys have put me in this box. And then I don't like the way that I've allowed it to happen. So now I'm mad at you and I'm mad at myself. (laughs) Yeah, and that makes me think of his story at the end about the politician who just invites people there to make him or her feel better. When I think about invitations and how I might be getting in the way, I think one way is sort of my status and even the way I think about how I do my job is sort of influenced by the fact that I can invite people into a conversation. And so there's a tremendous incentive to invite the people who I know will come, whether it's sending out an email to the list of people who I know will open or holding the event and targeting it at the right market so that I know exactly who will come and fill up those seats. Because if they're not filled up, that's a reflection on me and my ability to convene my conversations. And I want to look successful. I want people to generally think I'm good at my job. And there's a huge risk in trying to invite people who feel uninvited because they might reject your invitation. And if they reject your invitation, then you have to start holding the story that maybe you're not as effective at your job as you really want to think you are. Yeah, but then you're just lying to yourself. 
because you're like invite no but then you're inviting the same people and you're hearing what you want to hear and you're in this echo chamber and then you're not (laughs) allowing people to tell you what it's really like (laughs) i think what that gets me thinking about short-term fixes aren't really what help traverse the gap per se so like i think about the pressures that people and authority might be under in any one of us really in any role that we play in democracy there's this long game of building a sound democracy and there's some short-term fixes that might feel like policy or some of these other things but yeah i'm just getting really curious too about what do those pressures feel like for everybody kind of what you're mentioning (laughs) in a way is like well we like those feel-good stories we got people to the event and what even eric is saying too well we're getting this certain demographic in every time, try as we might, who feels pressure to be there and by not inviting certain people, not maliciously even, it just mm-hmm. work is happening because it's a short-term fix to get there. But another thing I was thinking about too, is like, what's the role that people play? So a differentiation still of like the exercise of leadership that's talked about in the book to the role that people play in all those spaces. So Bree, you mentioned, like, I'm invited to a meeting but I'm there to take notes. It's like, that's a role that I'm showing up as, is a note taker. So how do we show up in democracy in similar ways? Do I show up in a dissenting way? I'm even getting curious about how am I showing up in my role and is that really the role I wanna play? Are there other things available to me? Chris, you said that you're more inclined to invite people that you will feel like will say yes. And I wonder, cause like I say, I just start saying no to something. So I will be the uninvited person to say no to an event. It would feel a little bit like a, not like a slap in the face, but kind of like a bit of a heart drop if the uninvited person doesn't end up coming. So what is the follow-up step? Are the invited people trying something else? Are they following up with the uninvited and asking them why they didn't come to let them know that they actually were wanted there rather than just throwing an invitation? I know at KLC, we invite everybody to everything. So I decline things, not realizing that sometimes maybe they actually want me there. Like it's, (laughs) do we follow up with people what process are we taking when we get that first rejection? How are we taking that information? Are we taking it as evaluation to try to change our ways moving forward? Or is it just, okay, they don't want to be part of it. They're uninvited. They'll stay uninvited. And maybe I'll invite them to random things here and there to try it out again. But it is what it is. They've yeah, fallen. I, re- yeah, I recently had the experience at KLC of showing up at a meeting that I had a calendar invitation to that when I got into the room and sat down, it was very clear that while I was invited on paper, you weren't supposed to be there. there. (laughs) And I stayed there because it was hard to leave. Like I would have had to uninvite myself. I can maybe see how if you're uninvited to something or you have this feeling of uninvited, that you're really going to want to have that validation that yes, my voice is welcome. Yes, it has something to contribute. One invitation is not enough. Cultivating relationships is not a one and done kind of deal in leadership. And another thing on my mind is the difference between leadership and performing. It feels like there's a lot of pressure to form a role. Even right now, we're trying to exercise leadership and we're trying to also perform. We're trying to put on something that someone will listen to at some point and hopefully gain some value from. But if that's all we're doing, we're not really leading. 
comment that I've heard Eric Liu say twice now in two different settings is how do we live with each other well? And I just think that that's a beautiful question to ask. It's not using any terminology about civic engagement or civic discourse that might not be super relatable for everyone, especially if they've never engaged in civic life before. But how do we live together well as humans? I think that that's a beautiful question. Yeah, and one answer I have is like, we actually have to try. I know that for both Claudia and for Eric, both of them said, reach across and talk to somebody. Something so simple that nobody wants to do anymore is to reach across and talk to somebody that does not think the way that you do. I have literally said, I am not the person to talk to about that if you do not think like me. I will walk away. I will think you're a terrible person. I'm just not the right person to talk to about that. Honestly, how did I get here? I don't know, but this is where I'm at when it comes to some issues. I'm part of the problem. So I, I, I just... yeah. The thing that's resonating the most with me is I hear the competing values still of we want to be in community with one another and we want to do great things together. And like Eric mentioned, then there's also the American exceptionalism, individualism aspect. It's on me to do this. And that feels like a really hard thing to wrestle with. Bree mentioned something about talking, and I think we've all talked about talking across difference. I think one thing that's on my mind is approaching with the attitude that everyone doesn't think like us. One of the things in the book is that everybody can ask powerful questions. And if you want to ask a powerful question, I think you have to start from the attitude that not everybody thinks like you. And even the people around you who you might think like you, you may be surprised if you really ask a question to get below the surface of what they really think. Everyone has unique experiences and we should be very careful about thinking those experiences are always shared. Yeah, I agree with you. How many stories have we heard within the past few years where people are like, I've known this person for years and I just realized that you believe this. I don't even know who you are anymore. And that's really sad to think of because nobody thinks 100% the same. We're going to think differently. This has been the When Everyone Leads podcast, co-hosted by me, Chris Green. And me, Brianna Griffin, with production support from Marin Berblinger, Julian Montes, Neha Barawala. Learn more and order a copy of When Everyone Leads at kansasleadershipcenter.org. Suggest a special guest for the full season of the When Everyone Leads podcast. Connect with the Kansas Leadership Center on Facebook and Instagram at Kansas Leadership Center or on Twitter at the KLC. Remember, leadership starts with you. Onward. Yeah, that's lunch. <laughs> Thanks for jumping in. That was awesome.